Welcome to the, the Youth, youth ministry, ministry in Motion podcast. The number one youth ministry podcast on the planet. The show that keeps you motivated and your youth ministry moving forward. Now, here's your host, author, speaker, and trainer, Paul Turner. What is going on, youth workers? And I know already you're you're shocked. You go, Paul, didn't you just put out an episode just like a few days ago? And I did. And uh, but I wanted to give you a special episode this week uh, because I had an opportunity to talk to Chris Sly. And if you that name sounds familiar, is because Chris uh, was in American Idol the sixth season. Uh, he was a top 10 contestant, came in 10th that season. And uh, I've been following Chris on Instagram and saw that he had uh, some new music coming out. Um, and I said, I think I'm going to have Chris on the show uh, because Chris has been uh, a part of uh, you know youth ministry, been a part of worship, leading, songwriter. And I said, I want to put Chris on the podcast because I think he has something to share with youth workers. And he did not disappoint. He has, uh, I mean, if this is anything, this is a reintroduction to who Chris Sly is. And I wanted you to hear about it. I wanted you to hear his story. I wanted you to hear some of the ups and downs of ministry, of uh, the music industry, uh, some of his new music coming out, all that kind of good stuff, because I think it's just an important story, you know, that something we can learn from uh, as those uh, who are in the ministry and uh, work with teenagers. Uh, it's just a story that I think will resonate with you. So sit back and listen as this is a reintroduction, if you will, of Chris Sly. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to read you my Chris Sly playlist and okay. see if that, see if you, you tell me it's like a Rorschach test. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you my playlist about 10 songs on there. And you tell me, what does that say about me? Okay. Sure. Yeah, here's yeah, my so here's my here's my list. Soldiers of a City, Catching Up, Beginning Not the End, Sunny, In a Moment, Somewhere, Should Have Been a Hit, Love Your Enemies, Don't Waste, Need, Cry Tonight, and Loaded Gun. Interesting. I would say that you tend to gravitate more towards the stuff that would not be Christian radio than the stuff that is Christian radio. Cause like the, you know, when I made, when I made the first record post American Idol, I signed with a label and that our, it was a secular label and our whole intention was to make a record that could like, I was promised that they would do a, a certain amount of promotion on the mainstream side. So as we were making that record, you know, I was working with Amy Grant's producer, Brown Bannister. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, we made a bunch of these, um, you know, we made a bunch of these songs that were not Christian radio at all. And then the label, we had so much success with the first single at Christian radio, that the label was like, well, this is easy. You know, we're not going to go after, you know, secular mainstream radio for you. And, uh, and it actually was, ended up being the reason why I left that label. Cause I was really kind of frustrated by that. Like, you know, we'd made sure. this whole record and half the record was music that I really, really dug. And then the yeah. other stuff that I'd kind of compromised a little bit on and making Christian radio songs, which is not nothing against it. I love, I, you know, I love what Christian music did for me as a kid. 
Yep. Um, and as a teenager and a young adult, um, Give, but, give me, give me your top five, by the way. What, what was your, what was on in, in your, let's say, uh, your disc player? Because you're probably, I think you're 10 years younger than me. So yeah. what is in your Sony disc man uh, as you're skateboarding around the neighborhood? Yeah. So for me, it was Michael W. Smith, um, I'll Lead You Home. That was a big album for me. Okay. Um, Stephen Curtis Chapman's Speechless was a huge one for me. Right. Um, and the one before that, um, oh, uh, the one that had um, um, Lord of the Dance on it. Um, anyway, I can't yeah. remember the name of that yeah. record, but um, but yeah, Speechless um, and that right. Re- Stephen Curtis Chapman was huge. Jars of Clay was huge for me. Sure. Um, yep. DC Talk, obviously. I mean, you couldn't be a, a young adult in in the late '90s and not be into DC That's, Talk. It's true. And uh, <laughs> um, and then for me, um, this is a little bit later, but you know, like '99, I think was when this record came out. So I was, you know, young twenties at this point. But this guy named Bebo Norman oh, sort yeah. of blew my mind. Bebo. He was actually Bebo was actually the reason why I started doing music. Was oh, wow. I? Um, I have a sort of strange story as a uh, musician in that I'm different than many musicians in that I, uh, I did not do music as a kid. Um, I, I took maybe six months of piano lessons when I was like sixth grade and then another right. three months when I was in high school, a uh, senior in high school. Um, I always loved music, but, um, you know, I was definitely more of the athlete and that was in the days where, you know, if you were, um, an athlete doing music was kind of, you know, you were, you were made fun of for being feminine or, you know, uh, okay. <laughs> being, being, you know, the F word. Uh, sure. Sure. You know? And so, um, and so I was, I, I was a typical sort of jock. I just played football, sports. And, football, uh, basketball, no, the whole. Uh, I actually, uh, I was not as large then as I, as I am now. I was actually, uh, I played basketball and, and, uh, and, Basketball and baseball, but mostly basketball. I went to college to play basketball, actually, at a small Christian school. Um, yes. So, um, yeah, so basketball was sort of my life. I played, you know, I was playing about 40 hours a week in high school and doing that whole thing. Went to college. My freshman year of college, I went to a little place called Pensacola Christian College and yep. played on the team my freshman year. Well, I didn't play, but I, uh, I, I got in and I got injured right before the season. Uh-huh. And my coach was literally, I, I disliked him so much that it literally made him, made me like not want to do, to play basketball anymore. Like it was like at, at that level of like, you know, the, the 4.30 AM practices and, yeah. and doing all that stuff. He was such a jerk. <laughs> and, um, and I just, you know, I already had authority issues coming out of a very uh, conservative, you know, Sure. Uh, Christian uh, raising up and unfairness was something that uh, I just couldn't deal with very, very well as a right. freshman college. And, and so I literally like, you know, I was rehabbing from this injury and, um, and I would just go down in the bottom of one of the, um, in the bottom of one of the uh, dormitories at Pensacola Christian college, they had the practice shacks where all the pianos were and 
there are like these soundproof rooms where you could, and I would literally just sit at the piano and I couldn't really play piano, but I would just like figure out songs, you know, from Michael W. Smith record or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, so one day I'm walking down the hallway and I'm humming a Michael English song. I was, uh, you know, I was singing, I'll be holding out hold to you. <laughs> uh, um, yes. And uh, and literally, like this one guy walking the other way looked like a total like call leader kind of guy. Chases me down. He's like, "Hey man, were you just singing Michael English?" And I was like, "Uh, no," because you know, you get in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah. And, don't admit, don't admit to that. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, "No, it sounded good." Hey, I'm starting a singing group. Would you want to come and audition for the singing group? And so. I went and, you know, I, because I was hurt from basketball, I never would have thought about it if basketball had, if I had not gotten hurt. And uh, so I literally walked uh, down and auditioned at, you know, for this thing, ended up making it in. And what was cool about it was the Christian college that I went my freshman year, and it was the same at Bob Jones where I went later, um, you know, like the, the way that it worked was they had Sunday schools that were split up by uh, gender Mm-hmm. and by uh at Pensacola it was by class right so like all the freshman girls all the sophomore girls all you know well you, you you were not allowed to like sit together on Sundays but you could go on you could see girls on Sundays if you sang in the in the in their in their Sunday school so like I literally was like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get dates out of this. Like this is gonna be awesome. You know, exactly. since I'm not since I'm not playing basketball. Exactly. Uh, you know, that was the thing that I used to impress girls all through high school. Like, and so I just fell in love with music. And so my sophomore year, I transferred to Bob Jones because they had a conservatory level school, and um, and I just was you know kind of at this at this weird crossroads where I I was not uh, I had not taken music lessons or anything so I was not good enough to actually make it in a conservatory level thing and so I walked in and I said hey I want to be a music major really what I want to do is write songs and um and I really wanted to compose music and so they said well you know do you have you taken you know or do you play piano and I was like no they're like have you taken voice lessons no um so what do you want to do do you want like do you want to teach music education and I looked at the syllabus and I realized that you could take like I think it was 30 extra credits of uh music uh related uh electives if you were a performance major so I was like I want to be a performance major and they're like well you know that's really hard like you have to pass all these expectations people literally have to change their majors like their senior year of college because they fail out you know like all this kind of stuff I was like ah I'll be good. Let's just do I'll be this. fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. So, you know, I went, I, I ended up doing pretty well at it. And, and then my, uh, so I thought I was going to go to, I ended up, um, you know, studying classical music, obviously, because I was at Bob Jones and, um, and I, my, my, in between my junior and senior year, I got the opportunity to audition up in New York at Juilliard to go up for my master's, yeah. got accepted for my master's. And so my plan was to go and um, and I was going to do either opera or more likely Broadway. Mm-hmm. And um, and so like my plan was legitimately like to year 2000 when I graduated, I was flying up to New York that summer, get an apartment, you know, 
and I was gonna, you know, get my master's at Juilliard and, and do that whole thing. And then my senior year of college, I got kicked out for going to a For Him FFH concert. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. What was the concert you went to? That's, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. For Him and FFH and this guy named Ben Glover. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, uh, and so, yeah, like we, I got kicked out with seven credits left to graduate. My that's parents were crazy. Super happy. My parents were super happy about that. And, um, and so, yeah, like it totally changed my plans. And, and I had just discovered Bebo Norman, like maybe a year before that and right. had gone out and bought a guitar, was falling in love with songwriting at that point. And, um, and so when I got, when I couldn't go to Juilliard, I, I literally was just like, well, what am I going to do? And so I just decided that I was going to like, you know, try to make it as a, originally I thought I was just going to be a songwriter. Right. And, um, but I just didn't know, you know, I had no clue, you know, you pretty much have to move to LA or New York or Nashville yep. um, to do that. And, you know, living in Greenville, South Carolina, where Bob Jones was, I just, the idea of moving to, you know, Nashville, you know, just didn't make sense to me, even though that was kind of like my granny lived in Nashville or right outside of Nashville, you know, that's where my mom was originally from was Springfield, Tennessee. And, um, but for some reason, it just never occurred to me to go and try to make it as a songwriter. I just thought you sort of grew where you were planted and, and built something. And then yeah. I realized nobody around would cut my songs. So I just started recording my songs myself and it slowly turned into an artist career. And here I am, you know, that was, you know, December of 2000 was when I got kicked out of Bob Jones. So, you know, almost 20 years later, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to actually make a decent career at this. So that's sort of yeah. the story of how we got here. I, I think you're, I think you're doing pretty well. I, I think yeah. Bob Jones and uh, Pensacola Christian, they missed out. <laughs> and, uh, I, and, and first of all, uh, it sounds like you were a glutton for punishment. Uh, you went from an extremely conservative Christian college to an extremely, extremely conservative college uh, yeah well uh, Pensacola, they're they're strict about different things like pensacola you know is uh straight up like they're hardcore kjv only sure um and that was how i grew up was kg my, my dad was kjv only and he was a pa missionary pastor and yeah um so pensacola really pensacola and bob jones actually felt less strict than my upbringing um huh. So I, I think that, um, I mean, I obviously struggled with different things around, you know, the authority, definitely authority issues, you know. Um, but I think that, um, that going there was actually a, a bit of a relief. Like, you know, I'd gone to Christian high schools that were as strict or more strict than, you yeah. know, at least, at least at Bob Jones in Pensacola, I could drive a car, you know, drive my car, you know what I mean? Like I, I could go out and listen to music and, you know, I had a second job away from the school. And so, yeah. you know, I, I had some symbols of freedom. I didn't have to like, you know, even though you had, you know, hall leaders checking your stuff all the time. You didn't have to be uh, you Amish. Know. You didn't have to like, you know, completely uh, just refuse everything. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. And so when I got kicked out, you know, like I, I was in this weird position where, you know, I remember kind of making an active choice about six months to a year into after I'd gotten kicked out where I realized like every one of my friends just sits around and talks trash about how Bob Jones were in their life and, you know, like <laughs> how much they hate that place. Yeah. And I just like, I just don't care enough about it. <laughs> like, I, like these people, 
like, yeah, they screwed me over. Yeah. And they did, you know, like yeah, the way, sure. the way that I, got, I mean, to get kicked out with seven credits left to graduate, like, like literally, like I, I should not have gotten kicked out, but I did. They just yep. did it to make a point because they were trying to like make an example of me. Sure. And, um, you know, it, it, I did get screwed over by those guys and it, and it really, it really did hurt a lot. I mean, I, I think about like if I had graduated, uh, cause I never finished college. Like I would have, I would probably have a master's degree at this point in music and, you know, and in the lean times, which there, you know, are plenty of lean times as musicians. Sure. Um, you know, there are things that you can do with a master's degree that you can't do, but I also started my songwriting and artist career earlier than I would have ever. And, yeah. You know, so there, there's, it's a trade-off no matter it how is, you look at it. It is, but technically I would say that you probably have a master's in music because oh, you had to do it yourself. Sure. You have a master's without the paper. To teach, I can't get hired to teach college because of experience. <laughs> uh, that's so crazy. Like if I could hire Chris Sly to teach music and so I was like, come on in, man. Come on in. Let's not worry about paper. I mean, my yeah. goodness. Uh, let's flash back for just a moment, though, because I know that our, our audience would like to know, what kind of kid, or let me ask this, did you go to youth group growing up? Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, our youth group was a little bit different, obviously, because we, um, we, you know, we were very conservative, you know, like sure. culottes and, you know, that. that, that the, boys, the boys had to wear culottes? You know, girls, you know, had to wear culottes. Oh, oh, yeah. Boys had to wear gotcha. shorts that were, you know, below the yeah. knees. So no mixed think, swimming. Thankfully, no pool parties. No, no mixed winning. <laughs> um, you know, like no holding hands, no kissing, yeah. none of that stuff. Like, sure. I mean, it was, um, I mean, we did all that stuff. Oh, sure. <laughs> but, well, question. But, uh, but, you know, it was very, it was very, very restrictive. Um, you know, it, but I think I was lucky enough that right out of college, my first job out of college was um, working at a, a relatively large church in Greenville, uh, South Carolina called Southside Baptist Church. Well, I think they, they she just changed their name to Southside, but they were a Baptist church that had just changed their name. Right. And we had about 700 kids in our youth group. Um, and I was one of the youth pastors. I was like the youth worship leader. Wow. And yeah, and, and it was it was an experience because, you know, like I'm just starting. I have no no clue what I'm doing musically yet. Like I've just started playing, you know, music. And this is, you know, this would have been 2000 two so i mean you know chris tomlin was just breaking the idea of yep. a worship leader at a church as opposed to a music minister was just like a very very new concept yeah and uh and so i'm leading worship for these kids and just figuring it out and you know like shooting in the dark and throwing stuff against the wall and doing all <laughs> as we all do like, i remember you know we would do all kinds of fun stuff we would um we would uh, I basically did like the, <laughs> uh, like a, the, it was like the SNL news, basically Every, like once a month we would, and it was like the kids favorite thing. We would just like, you know, put up pictures and have fun, funny stuff that we would sure. do. And, um, yeah, it was great. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And then, um, the church, um, it was during that recession, like 2003, 2004, right. that a bu like a church is let go of a bunch of people. So like they let go of like 30, you know, a third of the staff. And so I was like the last one on. So I was the first one to go at, of the youth department. Sure. And, uh, and so from there, I like, you know, worked as a worship pastor at different churches. I was the first, like the first contemporary worship pastor at like three different churches in, in you know, Podunk, South Carolina. 
misery. It was misery, just pure, <laughs> pure and utter misery. I can understand um, that. You know, like I got rid of organs. You know, like I was <laughs> oh, like that. Oh. I was that guy. Wow. You know? Yeah. Man, um, and you're still alive. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah, but uh, the stoning yeah. didn't get you. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was. It was fun. It was fun times. It, it's definitely sort of you know built some. Uh, you had to have a thick exterior when you're working in Baptist churches, taking away you know organs. You know. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, did you have a cool youth pastor? When you were growing up, did you did did you like your youth pastor? Did you connect with them? Did you did you have that guy? Yeah, you know, um, it was it was different because I my parents were missionaries to the military, so every two years it would kind of cycle sure. through. Um, but I do remember there was one guy named you know I just called him Greg. Uh, I don't remember his last name, but Greg was sort of he was he was really cool because he. Um, he took a pretty active interest in my life um, when I was probably, I was probably 14 or 15. And, um, and he would like take me rappelling. Like he would take me out with his, with his unit. Like we would go rappelling and rock climbing and all that kind of stuff. And I was never really into like the rock climbing, but the rappelling was pretty cool. You sure. know, like just, you know, going down mountains and, and being, you know, a total, you know, like acting like a Navy SEAL kind of yes. thing. Or an army ranger, which is what oh. he was, um, and you know, so yeah, Greg was probably the most influential for me. You know, my dad actually, you know, because it was a small church. I think the biggest our church ever got was like maybe six hundred people, which was huge for a military ministry. But yeah. you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's not all that big. So my dad basically acted as youth pastor also, and so my dad and I, you know, my dad was sort of my youth pastor. Um, that, and my dad was really good. I remember my dad, um, I, I, I sort of, my mom, um, had a thyroid disorder when I was growing up that from about the time I was eight years old until I was 21 basically caused her to have, um, all sorts of, you know, basically like bipolar and, and, uh, and manic depressive. And so like mood swings that would just go from here to there. And, and I had a lot of like, um, like a lot of bitterness. And I think my dad, when, as I got into 13, 14 years old, I was really sort of developing into a very good basketball player. My dad had been a pretty good basketball player. And so my dad sort of made this very, very conscious decision. I think when I was 13 or 14, that he was just going to be my friend, you know, like he was, he was still like a, a very, very strict disciplinarian. Obviously I grew up in this very restrictive sort of lifestyle, but he, um, I think that if my dad had not made the choices that he made, there was no way that I was going to follow Jesus. Cause you know, like it, it was, um, I think looking back, there was so much, um, not necessarily from my parents, but in that world, there's just so much religious abuse that, and hypocrisy that I picked up on. Yeah. So I was really lucky. So if I had to say like, looking back at the youth person that sort of changed my life, it would be my dad. Like my dad really, um, did a great job of sort of really being the guy that was there for me, um, you know, a, a, a lot. Super, uh, uh, just a, a super uh, deal there because I, I think parents are the first youth pastors, right? Yeah. We're the, the, the other guys, the hired guys, the paid guys, they're like the vitamin C, right? They're like, look, you're supplemental vitamins, 
right, right to this thing parents you're the deal and those other guys can you know play egg in the armpit relay and uh do goofy things that's go yeah. do that right you you do all that stuff well let's talk let's talk music real quick because uh in your reading you know you start getting into country music uh i want to say last year like last august something like that and i and let me just preface this by saying I am not necessarily a fan of country music. I like country music, right? I like certain songs. I like old, the older stuff, maybe. The Johnny Cash, the, uh, you know, Merle Haggard, that kind of maybe era. What then you looked at country music and, and what did you think about it? What was it you said? Okay, country music. Well, uh, my story is sort of interesting. Like I, so post-American Idol, I came off and I got a record deal at a, at a label that was in the Warner Brothers system that ended up going well and not well at the same time. Like we sold a lot of records. We did really well. We had great success with a song of mine called Empty Me. Mm -hmm. But I felt sort of betrayed because they had promised me one thing and then didn't deliver on that thing. Yeah. Um, and then about the same time, the head of uh, Word Records, which was a part of the Warner Brothers system also, came and said, I really want to, you know, sign you over here. And so they negotiated my way out of my contract at this small record label, brought me into the major label world. And, um, and so while I was making my second record, I was coming to this place. My wife got pregnant with our first kid. Um, I was really struggling, you know, um, just to be frank, I was a narcissistic, you know, a-hole. And, um, and so I had just sort of developed, um, you know, there's all this stuff that now eight years into therapy that I can kind of point to and go, oh, now I get why I was the way that I was. But I had no tools back then, you yeah. know, because my, my, I, I mean, like many of us, I think, um, grew up in a church that sort of saw psychology and therapy and that sort of stuff as, um, you know, it was just yeah. like, just, you know, just trust Jesus, you know, just live out the fruit of the spirit as if it's that simple. Yeah. And, um, and so I just didn't have the emotional tools. Like I wanted to live out the fruit of the spirit with everything in my being, but you know, like I, I didn't, I didn't have the tools to deal with the damage that was inside of me right. in order to actually live out the fruit of the spirit. Right. And, um, and so I, um, I was just at a place where my marriage was falling apart. I'd been gone the year before my daughter was born. I was gone 330 days. Um, and I was just in, intensely and insanely busy. And, um, and it was, and it was like the stuff that, you know, I had fought my whole career for, right? Like my whole adult life, I'd fought to have this career. I'd worked my tail off to try to get to this place. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm just coming to this place where I'm realizing I'm not the person that I want to be. My marriage is falling apart. I'm about to have a kid. Um, do I really want to, do I want this to be my life? Cause I really felt like I had a choice where I was coming to this place where I was like, I'm either going to be Chris Sly, the artist slash musician. And that is, you know, what I am and I'm just not going to be married and I'm going to be, a, have a kid that grows up without a dad around. And, you know, cause my wife would move back to South Carolina almost definitely. And I would be stuck, you know, in Tennessee yeah. or I'm going to, so I, I, I ended up walking into my record company and uh, basically said, you know, I'm going to take a job at a church and um, you know, you got, I can do 70 shows a year instead of 180. And, um, 
and so we we ended up basically me leaving the label um you know and my publishing company just shut down i had record you know i had a number one song with rascal flats called here comes goodbye mm-hmm. um i'd written a song for them that it ended up being a number one song literally less than two years before uh i left town um and so i had publishing companies that wanted to sign me and i just was like no i'm leaving town so i literally left town i felt like and I don't know if I was right or wrong looking back, you know, I sometimes wonder if I, you know, if I made the wrong choice, if I should have just stayed and stuck it out and tried to, you know, you have all these questions of what could have been, but ultimately what I felt like God was calling me to do was to sort of lay down this, this career music career and say, here it is. My family's more important than this. I'm going to go back into ministry because I'd been in, you know, full-time ministry before American Idol go back into, you know, church ministry um, and really chase after being the best, you know, sort of pastor that I can be and make this my life. And, uh, and so I did that for, um, I was, I left town for seven years and worked at a couple places. And the last job that I worked at was at a church in Chicago. And um, it ended up being, um, one of, if not the worst church experience that I've ever heard about. Like it was just one of those massive church, everything, you know, I had a, I'm genuine, I'm genuinely positive that the guy that was my direct boss was a sociopath and it like lies, gaslighting, like all this kind of stuff just going on. And um, and so, you know, I, re- I technically resigned, but it was definitely mutual. Like it was one of those situations where it was like the, you know, the, the college football coach that res- resigns, you know, uh, that's right. And so, yes. um, yeah. And so I resigned. And so we moved back to Tennessee back in, this would have been, uh, December of 2017, no, 2016, December of 2016. We moved back and I just thought I'm going to be here for six months and then I'm going to go take another job at a church. I had been creative director at two of the biggest churches in America. And I just sort of thought that that was going to be my life. I loved it. I loved managing teams. I loved managing creativity, you know, like as a creative director, you get to oversee pretty much everything that hits the stage on Sunday mornings, uh, including the pastor's message. So, you know, my hands were in a lot of like pots that I cared deeply about. And, um, and, and I just thought I'm going to, I'm going to heal up for six months. And we got to the end of six months and immediately, you know, got with Vanderblomen and immediately got a job offer. Um, you know, my skill set and my experience are relatively unique. And, um, and so, um, I got a job offer, like literally like within two weeks, I had a job offer, went up to the place is another place in Chicago. And so I love Chicago. I thought, Oh, this is God redeeming this. Like, this is great. We went, I loved it. We got back home and I'm thinking for sure, this is the church I'm going to be at. And my wife just goes, I just don't think God's releasing us from Nashville yet. And I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to, I mean, like, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, like I, I am a creative director. That's what I am. Like I'm a worship pastor and a creative director and, uh, and it sort of started this process of sort of this intentional, intentional decoupling of who I am from what I do. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a distinctly American problem. If I remember the statistics correctly, I think it's like 93% of American men 
associate who they are with what they do. And I think it's like 60 something percent of American women compare that to like Europe where it's like 35 and 15%. Like it's a very American thing that we associate who we are with what we do. And so even, and I think it's even worse. I would guarantee you that it's a hundred percent of pastors. Like we tend to go, I am a pastor. That is my identity within, you know, obviously our identities within Christ, but my identity as a human man is that I am a pastor. And so suddenly this thing that I felt like was my identity, I felt like I needed to sacrifice again because my wife had traveled me to three different places to work at churches. And, um, and this one had just ended so badly and there was a lot of hurt there. And, um, and I felt like that, my wife was going to go with me to Chicago again if we wanted to. But as I prayed through it, I really felt like God was saying, trust me, even though this feels so, so right. Trust me, you know, trust that your wife is hearing from me. And man, that, that was hard, man. Like it was so hard. And so I, I went through this year long process where in therapy, I'm sort of struggling to sort of find who I am again, you know, like who am I? Oh, I'm not a leader because I work at a church. Like I'm a leader because I love people and I pour into people and I, and I mentor worship leaders and, and creatives all across the U S that have nothing to do with a job that I, that I work, you know? Um, So anyway, so, you know, I I am basically, was basically for, you know, from 2016 until last year, sort of, piecing the piece, you know, piecing the pieces together to pay the bills, you know, like going and doing a show here, you know, doing five shows this month and three shows this month as a, you know, yeah. leading worship and doing that whole thing. And um, just really struggling to be honest, like to, you know, make ends meet. And, and, um, and I had sort of, I think that again, as part of that identity thing, I think that I had tied the person that I was when I was do when I had this, all the success that I had, you know, yep. 10 years ago, I associated that person with the success and with the job. Because again, if you right. are, if what you do is who you are, then the jerk, the narcissistic jerk that I was back then, yeah. surely that w- the identity was Chris Sly, the musician was a narcissistic jerk. But the, pro- the problem was like, even as I was beginning therapy, I, I was a narcissistic jerk as a pastor too, you know, like it didn't just suddenly stop because I, right. you know, I, you know, it's not like, you know, a Spencer Tracy movie where you put on the collar and suddenly you're, you know, you're yes. magically like, you know, halos appear the, and yeah, yes, it's not, it, it's not that it wasn't that at all. Like, so, um, and so as I began to decouple, I went, you know, I remember when I moved back to town and people would be like, Hey man, do you want to, you want to write songs again? Cause I, you know, my greatest success as much success as I had as an artist, like the most money and the most success I had was writing a number one song for one of the biggest country bands of all time. Like, yeah. um, and so, um, as I came back into town, people were like, Oh, you're back in Nashville. You want to write? And I would be like, nah, I don't write anymore. I mean, like literally from 99 to 2013, I had probably written 2,500 songs. Mm. And between 2013 and 2019, I had written maybe 15 songs Mm. total. Um, And I just thought in my, in my mind, when I laid that sort of on the altar to say, I'm sacrificing this for my family, in my mind, that was the end of it. I was never coming back to it. Yeah. Well, last year I about, 
almost two years ago now, um, I wrote with a, with a, a guy that he was a country artist and he's starting to blow up now. His name is Nate Smith. And Nate um, had just emailed me like four or five times on Facebook. He was like, I live in California. I'm coming into town. I want to write with you. And I was like, dude, I don't write anymore. Thank you. But I don't write anymore. Next time he came into town, emailed me again. Next time he came into town, emailed me again. Finally, the fourth time, I literally was like, all right, dude, let's just write. And I'm thinking like, this dude is not going to leave me alone until I, until I, you know, until I write with this guy. Right. So we write together. And as he's leaving, he's like, dude, you're one of the best writers I've ever written with. Why are you not doing this? And I, you know, hemmed and hawed. And I sort of said, you know, like, you know, I think that time period is, is past. And thank you. That's really nice. Well, then I was producing a, a worship artist and he brought in a writer and literally like she, as she is leaving the session, she said this, like almost the exact same words to me. Mm. And, you know, when you've been doing this as long as I have and you reach a certain level of success, like being good is not good enough. Like, um, you know, being good is, is I, I'm really grateful that people think that I'm good. Um, I think that objectively I am good. You know, like I am a good songwriter. I have all the tools in my tool belt. I don't think it's braggadocious for me to say that I am a good to great songwriter. Being a good to great songwriter though, doesn't pay the bills. You know, what pays the bills is being a fabulous songwriter who gets really lucky in this business and happens to have big things happen for them and they get the right, because there's tons of incredible songwriters in this town. Yeah. yeah. And some of them never have a hit. You know, like some of them never make more than what they get paid $35,000 a year or whatever for their draw or whatever. There are plenty of people, plenty of stories of people way more talented than I am. So when you say to me, you're, you're one of the best songwriters I've ever written with, that's, that's kind. I want to be able to take in part of therapy for me yeah. has been learning how to receive praise and actually take it in to make it touch something in my soul. Right. 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 Um, but again, the logical side of me goes, okay, so what, you know? So, um, after the second one, I was like, I felt like this little nudge from God, like, Hey, this is, there's something here. At least think about it, you know? Yeah. And so as I began to process through it, I began to go, well, I know I don't want to write Christian music anymore because I think Christian music, when I was there, the box was this big, right? You know, in the nineties, it was like, you know, this big, when I was there 10 years, you know, 12 years ago, it was this big. And now it's about this big, you know? Yeah. Getting smaller and, and smaller. Yeah. And so I, I knew just with having friends who are struggling to pay the bills, you know, uh, writing Christian music and having huge hits and barely being able to pay the bills and, you know, yeah. having big publishing deals and barely being able to pay the bills. <laughs> I knew that Christian music was not going to be the thing. Yeah. Plus, it, you know, like the idea of like writing in this small little box of this one thing that works kind of hurts my heart a little bit to even think about. And so I knew that I didn't want to do Christian music. I, you know, and so it was like, well, do I want to do pop music? Well, there's a pop market in Nashville, but that's not the thing in Nashville. Um, do I want to write country music? And my first response was sort of revulsion, like, to be honest, like, because my experience, my experience of writing country music was really strange. Here Comes Goodbye was literally the first song that I turned in on my publishing deal. We wrote it specifically for to pitch to Rascal Flatts. It was put on hold the day after we finished writing it by Rascal Flatts. It was recorded a year later by Rascal Flatts. 
Right. Um, and so suddenly I'm writing country music constantly. And I'm getting in these rooms with all these crusty old dudes who've been writing country music for 40 years. Yeah. And all they do, and I'm not, I'm not joking, man. <laughs> all they do is complain about how bad the music business is. And so like, I'm already struggling with like cynicism and like trying to um, like starting to realize that I'm not the person that I want to be in this business. Right. And so it was a drag, dude, like writing with these dudes where every session is just a whine and moan session about like the state of the music business. Dude, it, yeah. it was a drag on my, it was a drag on my soul. Like yeah. my memory of writing country music was intensely negative. Yeah. Um, and so like my first thought was, oh, no, I don't want to write country music. Then I was like, well, you haven't, you know, this little voice in my head just goes, well, you haven't listened to country music in 10 years. Like maybe there's something there. Yeah. So I just started listening to country music. I went to Spotify and I, you know, downloaded, you know, new boots and hot country and all this stuff. Sure. And the first like two weeks were pure misery because I just was like, I hate this with every fiber of my being, you know, like if I hear one more banjo over a hip hop beat, I'm going to murder someone. Um, and then, and then it all started to make sense because I realized like, Oh, like my favorite bands. So like my favorite kind of music would be, I, you know, if you said, what's your favorite era of music for me, it would be like, mid 90s alt rock so like hootie and the blowfish counting yep. crows mm -hmm. um ben volts five like yep. that era of music just holds i'm you know because i was seven 16 17 18 years old coming up in that era huh? probably for you it'd be you know mid 80s to late 80s or early 90s sort of stuff right. rem like that kind of stuff yep. um so for me though like that was my favorite kind of music if those bands came out today they would be country bands but like if Counting Crows came out today, they would just add like some pedal steel and that would be a country band now. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm hearing all of these influences, all the stuff that I love, you know, cause like Counting Crows led me to the band, you know? And so suddenly, uh, you know, what I love about, what I love about music is that all music has its, has a, the stuff that it's inspired by, right? Right. And so even though Counting Crows, I think was its own thing in the mid nineties, especially like, you know, August and everything after and recovering the satellites, those are two of my favorite records of all time. Right. Those are, those don't sound like anything before it, but you can hear the influence of the band and Bob Dylan and all that, sure. you know, Springsteen and yes. all that sort of stuff. Yes. Um, and so, uh, I, as I began to listen about two weeks in, I start to go, oh, I hear Springsteen and I hear Brian Adams and I hear Counting Crows and I hear this thing. And I, oh, like now it's starting to make sense. Like how country music is just like, you're just adding pedal steel to 90s alt rock and suddenly it's a cool thing, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, like I'm a modern pop guy. Like I love modern pop music. And what a lot of country today is, like it or love, like it or hate it, yeah. like is just pop music with a little bit of twang to yeah. it. And so suddenly, or it's Motown, like there's Motown influences. And, you yeah. know, that's one of the beauties of what's happening in country music, I think, as someone who does it, um, is that no matter what kind of music you like, if you give yourself two weeks to like sort of ingest it, because right. your, your response will probably be the same as mine when you first start. 
you'll just be like angry, like every time you get in the car and listening to it, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but, well, listen, my children, my daughter especially, loved country music and I hated Christian music and she would make me turn on the radio anywhere I was driving her and say, baby, I don't want to listen to this. This is awful. This is, and I had to listen to chicken fried like a yeah. thousand times. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, baby, please let's, can we not do something about this? Um, and, and so I'm, I know, trust me, I've, I've been, and my son grew up, none of these children grew up in Alabama. I live in Alabama. We all grew up in, uh, I grew up in New York and, and in Florida. They adapted this culture of sure. country in Alabama. And, and, and I was a little disappointed because I was a rock and roll guy, a Springsteen guy. And I was like, what are we doing? They didn't, they yeah. did not uh, adapt very well. So. so all that to say, I sort of <laughs> fell in love with it, you know, and, I, and I'm trying to put my own spin. So m my main job yes. is I write, I write with artists and I, you know, and so I've got in 2021, uh, I think I'm going to have something like, it, 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 I mean, obviously it could grow, but I mean, I know of at least 25 to 30 cuts that are going to be coming out uh, with other artists. And somewhere along the way, the flip, you know, the flip kind of, the switch kind of flipped where I went, oh, some of this music, I really like me singing, you know, like I really like some of these songs. So Should Have Been a Hit was a song that- Great song. I wrote with, thanks, man. Yeah, I wrote with a couple, with a friend of mine named Noah Cleveland, who's a worship pastor or worship leader uh, that travels around the churches. Right. And he brought in this idea and um, we wrote the thing. So then I, I didn't feel like it was quite right. I brought in a friend of mine on it. And after, as soon as we finished it, I was like, I think this is going to be my first single. I didn't tell anybody else that. But right. I was like, if I decide to release country music, I think this is going to be my, my first single. It's sort of the nice little bridge between what I do in the worship world to country music. Yep. And so then, like, you know, uh, it came to I wrote this song called Enemies, which um, I brought in this idea. I'd seen this T-shirt that said, you know, my worst enemy is alcohol, but the Bible says to love your enemies. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. and so uh, and so I just thought it was funny. So I was writing with two guys who also grew up in the church, um, the guitar <laughs> player for this band called Low Cash and the guitar player for Lauren Elena. And so we were kind of talking about our upbringings and talking about, you know, and, and I'm sort of weird. Like I've only been drunk twice in my life. One of them was accidental where I didn't know that I was drinking and I ended up getting drunk because I was drinking without knowing it. And the other time was like literally right before my daughter was born. I was like, I'm going to get drunk. I want to know what this feels like, you know, like, <laughs> like I just want to know what this feels like before oh, my no. daughter comes you know come to the world yeah and uh and so i've only been drunk twice in my life like it, drinking is not something that i do a lot of but i i love like the tradition of the drinking song in country music because sure. a lot of times the most witty and like smart lyrics come from and, and i tend to revolve toward like smart and witty lyrics i i think they're funny like i like you know when when there's a turn of phrase it just sort of catches you and uh and so we ended up writing um enemies and man, as we were writing it, we were just dying laughing. Literally not a speck of alcohol is being consumed as we're writing this song. Like, right. we're just like laughing about, because we're talking about growing up in the church. I'm like, the whole story of the song is like, you know, my mom always told me to stay away from them. But by 23, I'd already been friends with Jose, Jack, and Jim, you know? Yes. And, um, and the second verse is one of my favorite things I've ever written. Like, um, and it goes, um, 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 I've tried killing them with kindness. I've hugged their neck just like a friend. 
Um, I've emptied out the bottle and I've been emptied out by them. Dark or clear, wine or beer, if it hurts you in the morning, my daddy taught me to turn the other cheek, so I'll just keep on pouring. You know, and so like the, you know, the the whole thing is sort of this tongue-in-cheek sort of yes. thing about like my Take parents, that, Bob Jones. Take that. <laughs> yeah. Take my parents that. taught me not to drink alcohol, and I'm trying to use their <laughs> lessons, you know, their scriptural lessons, you know, as a reason to drink alcohol. So it, uh, my, my, my parents are, uh, completely offended by the song and, yeah. uh, and I had to explain to them that it's, you know, that it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it is it's irony, right? It's irony. That's what yeah, the song it, Yeah. It's fun. You know, like, cause you know, um, I do understand that there are people who struggle with alcohol and I don't want to flaunt my Liberty at, you know, ever. I'm really careful about that, but you know, I, I think that there are things that you, you know, sort of put on a care. One of the things I love about, sort of the idea of a country artist is that often you're able to sort of put on a persona for a song. And so I think, um, you know, like Should Have Been a Hit is about a breakup. You know, I've been married for 17 years. It's been a long time since I've broken up with a girl, you know? Sure. Um, so you're speaking from experience, but at the same time, like you're speaking, you're speaking broad truths. And maybe there's like these little slivers of like deeply honest things, you right. know, because we've all been through a tough breakup, right? Um, and so, you know, I did grow up with my mom saying, like, because she didn't want me to, the devil to take me by alcohol, you know? Right, and so, right. So I, I think that, um, you know, it's been sort of fun and sort of liberating, honestly, because, you know, I, I've been a little bit worried as I have gone into this where I was like, man, I don't have a huge amount of fans, you know, anymore. Because when I walked away from the music business, I didn't do a good job purposefully of sort of, I didn't want to leave myself an, an out to go back to it, you know? Sure. And so sure. I did not keep up with the fan base. I didn't keep up with all that stuff. I didn't do social media, you know, in the way that I probably could have and maybe should have looking back. Um, right. But I did what I felt like I was supposed to do. I focused on being a good pastor and leading people well and all that right. kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but I have been a little bit worried where I was like, you know, I, I am interested to see, you know, sort of some of the comments that I get back uh from people and what's been really kind of cool is some of the people that i was a little bit worried about and have been like it's not my thing but i think it's a cool song you know like that kind of stuff so right. it's been it's been good well let me tell you something that's the that's the thing and i, I want to tell my my audience here uh you can i want you to reach out to chris on social media he's on instagram and it's at chris sly correct yeah. okay reach out to him by the way, the song comes out October 2nd, right? The single yep. comes out October 2nd. Uh, and I know that, that if this appears on YouTube, people are worried that I have fallen off the wagon uh, uh, with my background. But don't be nervous, people. Listen, listen, listen. It's the song, okay? Everybody relax. It's a green screen. Exactly. It's, listen, all the reform people, I know you get it. The rest of you, you got to catch up. Listen, it's okay. Uh, but the song is going to come out October 2nd. Are we going to see a Chris Sly full album? Or are we just going to, are we going to, is 2021 going to see all singles? Or are we going to see an actual Chris Sly country album? Uh, probably not an album. I have, um, so I've got another, one more single coming out October 23rd called Rendezvous. It's another, uh, like, smart it's, it's about drinking, but it's not about drinking. Like the whole thing is, is like, you know, I want to, I want to rendezvous with you. Right. Um, but ultimately it doesn't matter if we drink or not. I just want to spend time with you, you know? Um, sure. So I've got that song coming out October 23rd. So three weeks after this one, October 23rd. And then um, I'm putting out a Christmas single 
um, that's sort of a fun country, you know, song. Then um, I'm really excited. January 1st, I'm putting out an, uh, an EP. It's really about like the, you know, I've been married for 17 years. So obviously, you know, I've been through the ups and downs of marriage and sometimes the downs are more prominent than the ups. And I remember seeing this thing from, like, I remember seeing this picture that somebody posted on socials um, and it was just called Love. And it was a, it was something for, it was a like sculpture, like huge sculpture from Burning Man. And it's basically like these two, it's a guy, and a, it's a man and a woman sitting back to back, uh, you know, a sculpture, right? Like a, it's like metal pieces. So it's a man and a woman sitting back to back, you know, obviously disappointed, crying, whatever, sad. Yeah. And inside of them, there are these two children that are facing each other, reaching for each other, right? Mm. And wow. it just, you know, it moved me because, you know, eight, you know, eight years into therapy going like, that's the reality of what is so much of marriage is, is, you know, sitting back to back while the kids inside of you are just trying to reach for each other. Right. Right. And, um, and so I ended up writing a song based on this art piece of art and it's called kids in love, you know, and the whole premise is like, if we could just be kids in love again, you know, then, yeah. then we can make this right. And so that sort of, um, out of that came another four songs I'd written in, you know, down through the time of um, songs that just sort of spoke to the stick, sort of sticking to it in a relationship and that it's not always easy. It's hard. It's, you know, that this sort of thing is hard. Um, and, you know, I have a song called Wouldn't Change a Thing. Um, yep. You know, where the idea is like, you know, I would no. I, even though these, we've had all these hard times, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, got a song called Mistakes that is like all of the mistakes. I wouldn't change a mistake that led to you, you know. And um, so anyway, so that's coming out January 1st. And from there, I'll probably release singles. Eventually, there might be a country album. But the EP, I'm excited about that Kids in Love EP. I think that's going to be uh, really cool. And what's cool is that the artist, apparently he's a world famous artist. He has an, like an installation at, outside of the Louvre right now in Paris. Um, I reached out to him on Instagram and I just said, Hey man, I wrote a song based on your piece from Burning Man, like, you know, three years ago. Um, can I send you the song? Cause I'd like to use the artwork, but I have no money. Like I have no money to pay you for a licensing fee. So I sent it, he answered me back. It took him about like two months to get back to me, but he answered me back and he's Russian. Like I'm sure he, you know, I don't know if he's getting a translation or something, Google translation or whatever, but <laughs> right. he wrote me back. He wrote me back and he said, send me the song. So I sent him the song and he actually sent me like a high res thing that I'm actually using his artwork, like his piece that inspired the song as the artwork for the album. So it's super cool. Yeah. That is fantastic, man. That is fantastic. Let me tell you something. I'm, I just think it's uh, so cool. The journey you've been on, I think the people that are listening and people that are going to be watching, I think they can see a lot of great examples of God moving and shifting and and growing and i think it just it's so relatable chris i think people are all over the board right in their journey uh with god their journey with their careers i resonate and i know that the people listening to this and gonna watch this are gonna resonate with us too and chris thank you so much for uh, let me let me put you on the spot real quick though and just say look i'm putting you in a room with a hundred youth workers i'm only gonna get three minutes with you i'll never see you guys again um this is what I want to tell you because there's people that are listening uh, that are going to watch and they're resonating with your story too. Uh, and they're saying, 
Chris, what, what can I do now as a youth worker, as, a, as somebody that works with teenagers and somebody like yourself who's worked with teenagers, what would you like to tell them? It, it could be encouraging. It could be whatever's on your heart to tell them. Yeah, I think what hits me right off the bat is, number one, you could be a youth leader and have nothing to do with youth ministry. Um, like, you do not have to be a youth pastor who's paid by your church part-time, full-time, whatever, in order to be a youth leader. Being a youth leader is, being a leader in anything that we do is literally about how we lead the people that are put into our lives. And so with your kids, with your kids' friends, with the kids at church that you see, even if you're not involved in the youth ministry at, at all. So, you know, you don't have to be in ministry and paid to do it in order to be in ministry. We are in ministry no matter what we're doing, right? right. Um, and, I, and, I, and I have come to believe that wholeheartedly. As much as I loved having my paycheck derived from doing ministry, and it really was hard for me to let go of that, yeah. um, I, I am so happy that I did. I think secondly that I would say that you, um, what I would encourage people with is that your, t- your skill set may not be to write songs or to do this, you know, anything else besides being a youth pastor. Honestly, like I'm not skilled to do anything outside of music. You know, I have management experience, so I probably could do management like, you know, because I, I managed, you know, my, my last church, I had 23 people that worked for me and right. answered to me day in and day out. Um, you know, and so I think, but most of my skills are musical skills. And, and so, you know, I I think that sometimes that we get so tied up in thinking that we are trapped and I can't tell you how many people I know who go like, man, I would not stay at this church if I thought I could go somewhere else, or if I thought I could get another job, or if I thought I could do this other thing. And I, I don't think that we leave um, because we like for selfish reasons, I don't think that we like, I think we need stick to itiveness. We need people that when you have a pastor who is on a power trip or you have a, uh, lead, an executive pastor that is, you know, just genuinely not godly acting. I, I think that you can leave or you can stay. I think we need stick to itiveness in the church. We need people who are choosing their ministries and their people. But I think that often I would say, you don't have to stay in this job in order to be in ministry. And um, sometimes the healthiest thing for your family is to take a job where you make more money. And that you, like one of the things that I'm excited about, if God ever allows me to have success again in this industry, is one of the things that I've missed is the ability to be extravagantly generous. Like that was something that has not been my reality for a while because I just have been poor to be perfectly blunt, you know, like, um, and so like, I I miss those days. Um, and so like shoes, um, like I want to pay for, I want to be able to pay for my kids college and I want to, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think sometimes we go, I'm stuck in this job that pays me $32,000 a year and I have to work a second job in order to make ends meet. And my wife has to work and, um, you know, my kids can barely afford to, you know, to play football or to play baseball and all this kind of stuff. That was my reality. I was, I was working at a church, you know, in churches where I was making such little money and I was like conditioned that I had to come back to it. And what I'm realizing more and more is that, yes, if you feel like that's what God's called you, then do it and do it with all of your heart. God is going to bless you beyond all means. He did me. 
He blessed me in ways that I could not imagine. In like times where I thought I was never going to be able to make ends meet, he made ends meet. God is good in that way. But we don't always have to put God to the test. Sometimes we can do a little legwork of ourselves. So um, don't be scared to uh, do what's right for your family at times, too, even if you feel like God wants you to be in ministry, because ministry is more than just working at a church. That is a great encouragement. And let me tell you something. I think you've been very generous with your time tonight, Chris. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking to youth workers and sharing your story, which by the way, if you want to follow up on Chris's story, chrissly.org. Don't forget the single enemies, October 2nd. I want you guys to support that. Chris, I think you're going to do, uh, you've already done great. You're going to continue to do great. And uh, I wish you all the best, my friend. Well, thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this special episode of my interview with Chris Sly. And I hope you'll go by uh, and follow him on social and go visit chrissly.org. Uh, check out his single on October 2nd. Uh, go find him on Instagram at uh, Chris Sly. And I just think that the tale of Chris Sly is just getting started. Uh, he has already lived quite the life, as you can tell. And uh, keep Chris in your prayers. Keep, uh, you know, pray for him and uh, support him and uh, let him know uh, that you're, uh, you're rooting for him because I know he would appreciate that. All of his links will be down in the show notes below. And if you're brand new to the podcast, thank you for joining me for this uh, special episode with Chris Sly. Uh, if you would like uh, to follow along with me, I would love for you to uh, subscribe over there on iTunes. And uh, if you're a regular as always, thank you for letting me borrow your ears for a little while. Hope that you enjoyed the content today. If you enjoyed it, please go over to iTunes, leave a review and a few stars. That helps the podcast get found. And if nobody has told you lately, you're doing a great job. Well done, youth workers. Keep up the good work, and I'll catch you guys in the next episode.